State Representative Justin Offerman has only been in the Missouri House for less than two years, but he's already making an impact in the General Assembly's lower chamber. The Herman Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I'd say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very, 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 very special <laughs> guest for today. And I'll get to get to that why I said so many varies in a minute. We have... Uh, Justin Alferman, State Representative for the 61st District. Uh, thank you for, for coming our way. And I'm going to let our listeners in on a little secret. Um... Back in 2006 and 2007, Representative Alferman helped host a radio show in Columbia, Missouri that I happened to be on many times during my tenure as the state government reporter for the Columbia Daily Tribune. And nine or ten years later, the the tables are turned, (laughs) and I've been waiting for this moment ever since you were elected to office to have you on the show just so I could say those words right there. So first, tell our (laughs) listeners a bit where your district is. So so my district is northwestern Franklin County, northern Gasconade, northern Osage County. So in Osage and Gasconade County, it's everything north of uh, Highway 50. And um, in Franklin County, it's the cities of uh, the majority of the city of Washington and New Haven, Leslie and Gerald. So, do you live in Washington? I live in I live in Herman. Born and raised oh, okay. born and okay. raised in Washington, Missouri. Uh, but my wife and I moved uh, just before getting married in uh, uh, five years ago. Excuse me, in 2010. Uh, I've been living there since 2009. Herman is okay. a, a really nice place. My wife and I actually went there on a weekend getaway once, and great restaurants, great. Uh, libations and just it was right right around the time of Christmas so there was uh, Chris Kindlemart is that what it's called? Uh, Chris Kindlemart Chris Chris Kindlemart. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not German I'm Polish so I I don't know the the language very well and those two uh, nationalities have not always gotten along but tell us a little bit about yourself kind of about your upbringing your your role in Missouri politics and leading up to the point where you got elected in 2014. Sure. Um, born and raised in, in Washington, Missouri. Um, I love that place. It, uh, it, it, that, Herman will not like me to, to say this, but Washington is still home, and that is still considered my, my home. And uh, we're pretty much, uh, my wife and I, all of our friends and family still live there. So that, for all intents and purposes, that is our, our home still. Well, they have a great breakfast place that I ate at. About a year ago, but go on. Anyways, continue. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, sure hey, that there. I'm, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are many great breakfast places there. But continue. No, this is known. But go ahead. Um, and uh, I'm a graduate of St. Francis Borgia High School. Um, oh, oh, really? Yes. Um, you know who else graduated from there? Brock Olivo. Brock Olivo, that is correct. And uh, I believe you <laughs> made him famous. Uh, I, I did. Actually, I think he made himself famous by being an incredibly good football player and a really nice guy. That is correct. But um, I, I had to just ask because uh, Brock Olivo may be one of the most famous Franklin Countyans of all. So. Actually, not from Franklin County. He was from Gasconade County. Oh, okay. He's from he's from Herman. Oh, so he's the most famous Gasconade <laughs> Countyan of all. That, and I, and I, that could be correct. I, and I just want to give a shout out to, to Mr. Olivo, who now I think is a coach for the Kansas City. Chiefs. Mm-hmm. He was a really good sport after the 2008 congressional uh, election, and he was legitimately a super nice guy. Very, very nice guy. But and continue. 
So I um, went to St. Francis Borgia High School after that, uh, East Central College, um, where I got a, an associate's degree in communications. And um, then in 2006, moved to uh, Columbia and attended the University of Missouri, uh, where I have a uh, bachelor's degree in political science, okay. uh, ironically, right? Yeah, well, my son has one of those, too. He ended up going to <laughs> law school. What did you end up doing with it? I ended up, um, right after college, uh, running a political campaign uh, for then State Representative Ed Robb. Yes. Yeah. Who I knew very well, obviously, as a Columbia Daily Tribune state government reporter, you deal a lot with the state delegation. And mm-hmm. was that that was in 2008, because I actually remember going door to door with Representative Robb and you were there. And that was actually one of the most expensive state representative races ever against Chris Kelly. It got pretty contentious between the two. And I, I thought it was a shame because never before had I seen so two such well-qualified candidates run for office and they were running against each other. Part of me wishes they were running in separate districts so they could have served at the same time. But there was... And after redistricting, they could have actually okay. done that and yeah. they would have served in different uh, different house seats. So what did you do after that? Well, ran uh, ran that campaign, and then uh, we 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 lost, unfortunately, by 411 votes. Yeah, but not that, that I'm bitter. Um, and I, it was basically um, at, in 2008, you couldn't give a Republican a job in, in state politics um, because yeah, there was we the had big had sweep, such a thumping, right? So um, I I went back to uh, to work in Washington, and uh, just by happenstance, I I knew someone who um, in, in Washington. Um, who who um, was associated with a lobbyist, and mm-hmm. I thought, um, and a public relations firm, and um, so I started working after that um, with Jewel Paddock, okay. uh, and Paddock and Associates, um, and, and managing and, and helping him out with some of his nonprofit organizations as well. Never actually did the lobbying um, portion of, of that business, but tracking legislation and, and helping him out. Um, then went to work for um, Representative uh, Yates, uh, Brian Yates, mm-hmm. in, in the Missouri Capitol. Um, that lasted for about six months. Um, and is that because he resigned? That was because he resigned. Um, originally, um, there were um, there was talks like he was going to be going over to the Missouri, or at least running for the Missouri Senate against Brian Pratt, uh, which was Brian funny. Pratt. And not to get too much on a, on legislative nostalgia, but both Brian Pratt and and Yates worked at the same law firm, and there there was a expectation they were on a collision course. That didn't happen. He resigned to take another job, right. and the rest is history. So I, I then went back for a second stint with uh, Paddock and Associates in Jefferson City, um, and primarily worked on the Missouri Transportation Alliance at that time. Um, did that for another six months to a year, um, <clears throat> and then did a three years, uh, a three year stint at the Missouri Republican Party, um, dealing with uh, grassroots outreach and primarily um, opposition research, and then later. Um, uh, redistricting. I was going to say, yes. yeah, you were pretty heavily involved in that redistricting I, situation. So. I was the exclusive uh, staffer for the Missouri Republican Party, and I served both um, the the House and the Senate um, uh, when in drawing the congressional maps, but also, uh, more importantly, uh, the or legislative the, maps. The, the legislative maps. Um, I, I didn't actually have a say in what those maps actually look like, but I did have um, a hand in actually drawing that just from the basics of knowing how um, GIS software works. Yeah, and I, I, I want to talk about this for a couple of minutes because mm-hmm. this is a, a topic that interests Joe and I. Obviously, the congressional maps are drawn by the legislature, right. and that is a pretty political process. Yes. But the state there's a misconception out there that the state legislative maps are also drawn by the legislature, and that's just – not accurate. Completely incorrect. What, what, but, what, what ends up happening yeah, right. is the governor appoints two bipartisan boards. Oftentimes these boards deadlock with each other. They then go to court 
But the Senate map didn't do that for, for various reasons. The House map, I think, did end up deadlocking and judges ended up drawing the lines. Right. Is that correct? Sort of. Um, the, the governor gets sent a slate. Right. Um, for, 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 for each the, party. For, from the legislative districts, it's one per, or excuse me, two uh, Republicans and two Democrats from uh, each congressional district. They get sent to the governor, and then the governor picks his choice out of those two. For the state Senate, it is a slate of, I believe, oh, goodness, uh, 20 or excuse me, 10, uh, and then he selects five out of mm-hmm. that. And so, yes, um, <clears throat> if you can't draw a map in that time, then it is up to the um, appellate judges of the state of Missouri to actually yeah, the, draw Now, to hear the Democrats talk, though, they contend that, okay, even if it was allegedly nonpartisan, that they feel that in the end the Republicans ended up um, getting a better um, deal on it. Um, what's your take on it since you were involved? Now, I, I think some right. of it is just a matter of expertise. <clears throat> who had the, who had but more expertise? The, the the Senate map. You could probably make an argument that there was some partisan slant that went into the drawing of the districts because uh, the members of the committee are obviously nominated by their political parties and have their political parties at and, interest. And not to belabor the point, I don't really even want to explain what happened. But basically, the commission ended up drawing the map in in the end. Correct. You can kind of there, go- there were two versions of the you, map. You can right. Google and figure it out, but continue. <laughs> the the legislative districts. Um, I, I, having actually studied these legislative mm-hmm. districts, for instance, my 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 legislative district, I have thirteen thousand residents out of the city of Washington. Fifteen thousand um, would make the city whole. There's no actual reason why the judges split the city of Washington that way because there's no partisan um, breakdown that would have right. benefited either side. Um, it, it, in my opinion, and this is going to upset a lot of appellate judges, but it was just simply sloppy mapping. Um, and, and a lot of that, uh, the districts, why they look the way that they do is not understanding Maptitude as a as a program and kind of dragging and selecting and trying to make the most square districts you can. Well, that may look good and pleasing to the eye, but that's not actually doing very much for uh, representation um, in, in, in the General Assembly. So I really don't believe that there was a lot of partisan slant behind the current legislative districts. I think it's just a... Um, a, a group of people who absolutely had no background knowledge of how this process should work um, and did the best with what they were dealt in now, a very short time. Now, now before we go into issues, because I, I guess we could talk about redistricting forever. Yeah, but well, I would like you to talk about why you decided to run after doing but, all this stuff. But, but sure. yeah, my only other question about this is, you know, sometimes you hear Democrats who are definitely in the super minority complain that state legislative districts are, quote unquote, gerrymandered against them, even though judges ended up drawing the right. House districts. I'm sure you've heard that. What's kind of your response to that argumentation? Because I think you could make an argument that the congressional maps definitely had some partisan overtones to well, it. Well, and they admit it. I mean, but, let's not get into the congressional but, thing, but, but they but the admit legislative, it. But when we're talking about the state legislative yeah. ones. But, what do you think but, about but, that? But I, if someone levies that, that question to me, I, I ask them and, and try to get an understanding of do they have a rational understanding of how those maps were actually drawn. And to, for them to say that there's a legisla- or you know a, a partisan slant or any kind of a slant towards it, I would tell them that, that that's simply not true. And, and 
even if you wanted to try um, to, to do that, um, you would not be successful with the, the judges that actually drew it. If you, the commission, you can get a slant, but I, I usually just ask people if they have a background knowledge of actually who drew the maps. Yeah. And, and nine times out of ten, if they say there's a partisan slant, they don't really understand what the process is. So with all the bloodbath in redistricting, good or bad, what made you decide to run for office yourself? Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a good question because um, I never act, I, I was working at the time for uh, Representative Sirpoy. Yeah. Um, in the majority floor leader's office, excuse me, assistant majority floor leader's office. Um, and I never really saw myself as actually running for office, um, but I was already serving as a city alderman in the city of Herman. And um, I looked at that district after the maps came out and I said, you know, jokingly, I go, well, that would be a good district for someone living in Herman, born and raised in Washington and knows the background <laughs> behind Franklin County. But I, I, I said that as a joke because I had not anticipated uh, Representative Schatz ever stepping down from, from that position and knowing that he had another um, six years to, to run, that it probably would never happen that, that I would have the opportunity to run for that seat. Um, whenever it was, he was made, it was made known that he was not going to file for office again. Um, at that time, uh, some of the, some of the house members took a look at the map and said, you know, we, we already have a candidate, um, and, and kind of approached me about it. And it had already been in the back of my mind, but, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed serving the people at Herman at the Board of Aldermen level and saw an opportunity and, uh, met with my wife and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a chance to do this or an opening like this ever again at a more opportune time. And so um, I took a chance on it, and um, I'm very glad that I did, and um, and, and it turned out very well I don't in, think, in the election. I, I'm not even sure if you had a primary. Did you have a primary? I did. Um, it was a gentleman by the name of Alan Seals, actually mm -hmm. a, a, a great guy. Um, through, um, it was in April, so right at the month after filing it closed, um, he unfortunately had a stroke. Mm-hmm. And decided he didn't oh, want to be, didn't want to be yeah. in the primary anymore, and so he withdrew. So I did um, ha have a primary opponent, um, but uh, Alan and I talk. Um, we're, we're on good terms, and, um, and and his health has improved uh, the, dramatically. The reason I ask, yeah, it's a very Republican district, so that's mm -hmm. a seat when it's open. The Republican primary is the election. So that <clears> we could we could delve into nostalgia, as I said, for a <laughs> long time, but let's kind of get into present day. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show is you've actually handled a number of high-profile pieces of legislation, especially in the realm of ethics, which has become mm -hmm. a, a big topic in the Missouri legislature. Um, what I think the bill that you personally sponsored was a, a lobbyist gift ban. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly it does? Sure. Um, the bill, as, as it's written, would essentially end um, the practice of lobbyists giving individual gifts to legislators. Um, and gift is never actually found anywhere in statute. So uh, expenditure, lobbyist expenditures is what we're talking about here. These are personally consumable items that can't be transferred except to maybe a spouse or, um, or a dependent child. And by their nature are personally consumable. I'm talking um, meals, um, gifts, um, like... Um, uh, cigars. Um, like the lobbyist buffets out in the hall on the third floor? Lo lobbyist buffets. are th Those are expenditures. Uh, and I'll get to that portion of, okay. of the bill in, in a second. Um, the sporting event tickets. I mean, if you, if you look at the, the Ethics Commission, some members of the General Assembly in the past have taken tens of thousands of dollars in single years in, in, in gifts. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uh, to uh, 
peel back the undue influence of, of lobbyists in the building and also try to make sure and try to restore some faith that that when legislators go down to Jefferson City, they are going to be serving their constituents. They're not going to simply be serving themselves. And if you look at a couple of the of the lobbyist reports, that is called into question on some legislators in Jefferson City. And I think you're one of the people that doesn't take or, or – that is correct. Yeah, you're, you're a big zero, <clears throat> yeah, basically. I, and I filed this bill last year um, before ethics reform was really the the, the forefront of, of legislation. Um, had a pretty poorly drafted uh, version of it last year, kind of to, to start the discussion. And then over the summer, I really delved into the issue and, and saw what other states were doing, what worked, what really didn't work. And, um, and, and the product that we have right now um, that, that was passed out of the House, I, I will say, um, goes beyond even the most restrictive um, uh, gift ban in, in the nation. So, um, I, and I believe that's where we wanted to be in the House position to have the, the strongest position going over into the Senate. But what happens now? I mean, there's been lots of talk, but there's unclear if there's been much real action. As far as in the Senate. Yes, in the yeah, Senate, but right. and the point <laughs> is the House has stuff and then it kind of dies. Right. What's your view of the lay of the land as far as ethics reform in the General Assembly this year? I will say that that um, that Senator Richard and Senator Kehoe have been have been very willing to move ethics reform and have been very willing to actually have the discussion and, and take up Senate floor time. Um, unfortunately, there have been a couple of of individual senators. I would say, in a whole, the the Senate does want to move on ethics reform. Whether whether that is, I don't know what kind of form that's going to be whenever they, that bill eventually, or if it does come back from the Senate. Um, but I would say that th- there's probably a handful, four or five, that don't want to see any reform whatsoever take place, and, and they are the ones that are gumming up the works right and, now, and, and that's unfortunate. And then I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because we're going to play three different clips from three different senators talking about what they feel are the shortcomings of this ethics overhaul. The first is actually going to be the person that you succeeded in the Missouri House, Senator Dave Schatz of Sullivan. He was on our show, I don't know, maybe about a month, a month and a half ago. Yeah. And we talked with him about... Maybe, yeah. Yeah. We talked with him about the prospects for, you know, the overhaul of ethics regulations in Missouri. And he took a pretty dim view at the time. And if you've seen his actions in the Missouri Senate, he has actually been one of the people that has spoken out most loudly against a lot of different things, not just the lobbyist gift ban. Here's what he had to say during our show. It's something that's going to be a challenge. Uh, a lot of people talk about it. I'm not sure that in, in the people that I speak to in my district on a day-to-day basis uh, are, more, are as concerned about, you know, ethics reform as maybe what some of the, the, uh, the, the folks in, in the media are uh, because they're worried about jobs, job creation, floodwaters, things of that nature that are more important to them, I think, than uh, worrying about some of the issues that sometimes are brought up when we talk about campaign ethics. So, well, you, both of you basically live in the same district, although you live in Herman, but you represent a part. Well, of we the both same we both share twenty four thousand uh, Franklin County yeah. constituents. So, my my question well. is: Are you hearing this from your constituents? Is it really a big deal? It, it, it is, um, and, and to the people that I talk to, um, you know, it, it may not. He, he may be right in the sense that whenever you talk to people, uh, what are the three biggest issues that you're wanting to to, to get done uh, for the general assembly this year? Uh, ethics reform probably doesn't come up because they're not down there every single day seeing what happens in the state capitol. But if you tell them, do you think it's necessary for a legislator to accept lobbyist gifts in order to perform their duty? 
they will look at you as if you are crazy. That, that, that this type of, and then actually whenever you describe that we have unlimited um, access to gifts as legislators, when you describe this system uh, to uh, residents of the state, they kind of always shake their head and they go, no, 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 that, that, that's, that can't be how it is. And I, when I assure them, yes, this is how um, our, our gift system, expenditure system works for lobbyists, they, they shake their head and they say, okay, yeah, we need to put an end to this type of practice. So here's another counter argumentation from Senator David Pierce. He's a Republican from Warrensburg. He has also been critical of this ethics overhaul. And he has said that any ethics agenda without campaign contribution limits is insufficient. Here's what he had to say when he was on our show recently. And, you know, we're spending so much time uh, talking about ethics reform. We're worried about if a lobbyist takes me out for a cheeseburger, but we don't care if that, that, that same lobbyist or some group gives me a million dollars. And so um, we, I think that's where we really need to focus on, on these huge campaign contributions. So I'm, the, 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 the truth of the matter is I don't think campaign contribution limits are going to pass in the Missouri legislature. No. I don't think there's enough Republican support for that. But what do you make there's of this? There's not enough Democratic support for that either whenever you have um, the, the Democratic frontrunner and will be the candidate in Chris Coster. Whenever we did have campaign finance laws, found a way to still get that unlimited amount of campaign cash. So both sides, uh, Republican and Democrat, um, oppose this idea. Now, to, to elaborate, what, what are you saying? Uh, the attorney general voted to repeal campaign contribution limits when he was Republican in 2006 and when he was a Democrat in 2008. He, he talked to Joe recently about how he's concerned about the size of contributions. Yeah, because yeah, he's saying that when he may cast those votes, the you were looking at maybe $25,000 contributions, and you weren't ever imagining that people were going to be throwing out a million bucks like they are But now. to be so, fair, I mean, but, but, that, but I just, just, but, but just got to note, I listened I would, to that whole interview, and I don't hear him repudiate his previous and I would And I would, and I would, also, um, I would also ask, you know, he, he also was taking contributions from someone who had 100 different packs and funneled the money through that way. So he was still getting, yeah, he was still getting campaign contributions in excess of what the actual limits were for theoretically one donor. So there are ways that, 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 that people are going to get around that, even if we went back to that type of a system. But I will fundamentally disagree with, with the senator, Senator Pierce, and that campaign finance and, and lobbyist expenditures or gifts are two different things. Because by their nature, in, in statute, campaign contributions can only be used for a, a finite indefinable uh, amount of things, whereas gifts are, per- by their nature, personally consumable. At the end of, if I'm, if I decided not to run uh, again, and I still have money in my campaign account, there's only certain things that I can actually do with that. But I can never, at any time, convert that over to my personal, uh, my personal well-being. If I do that, at the point that I'm converting campaign cash over to personal use, I've committed a crime in the state of Missouri and, and will most likely go to be going to prison for this type of offense. So a gift is fundamentally different than a campaign contribution. You can only use it for certain things. Well, and is it because, I mean, okay, we have to pay attention to it, but at least with donations, they're supposed to s- report them within 48 hours. If, the, if, if they're, they're over, big ones, if they're over five thousand um, to the Missouri Ethics Commission and gifts, while they are reported technically monthly, but I've been kind of focusing on this. It actually, before it really will show up on the uh, Ethics Commission site, it could be two months because the 
legislator gets to look at the list of what the lobbyists had turned in, and then the right. legislature can legislator can say that's right, that's right, that's not right. So my point being that it can be months, definitely weeks, but if not months before the public has any notion of what sort of um, gifts someone has gotten from lobbyists. Is that that's correct? Is that one of the issues? The fact that there's not this at least fairly relatively immediate reporting. So if the public is interested, they have a sense of who's getting what from who? For, for, in, in realms of gifts? Yeah. I, I think it's just the, the, the general um, that the, the public finds it repulsive that, that someone says, well, I have to have a meal. I have to have these Cardinals tickets or, or Royals tickets, depending on which part of the state you're in, that I have to have these in order to perform my duty as a public official. You know, no, no one was offering me any uh, meals or gifts whenever I was an alderman in the city of Herman because I was only representing, you know, 750 people. But now that somehow, I, because I'm representing 35,000 people, lobbyists want to come to me and they want to be able to give my gifts or give me gifts so that they can get. And and, and I don't want to get, the, get to the notion that I don't actually go out to lunch or meet with lobbyists. I, I do this on a daily basis. But the only thing that a lobbyist will exchange with me is information and dialogue about legislation that we have before us. I, 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 I just don't understand why some legislators find the need to protect this style of system that we have had for this long. Which is part of the process, by the way. So I want to play one more clip, and this is part of a more global criticism of not just the lobbyist gift um, ban, but also just everything else that's come out of the House. This is from Senator Bob Dixon. He's a Republican from Springfield. And he's made the argument that everything that is coming from the House does not directly actually get to the heart of the matter of why people are talking about ethics in the first place. And that is the fact that House Speaker John Deal resigned because of his inappropriate behavior with interns. It's because Senator Paul Lavoda resigned because of inappropriate, uh, inappropriate potential <clears throat> sexually harassing um, behavior toward interns. And he, he feels like we're getting away from what people were talking about uh, initially. This is what he had to say. The system is not corrupting. The system is innate. The problem is we have human beings involved, and there's not one of us that's perfect. So that his speech got a lot of attention. I'm sure that you heard it. What, what do you have to think about it? I was in the chamber yeah. whenever he gave that speech. Um, to hide under, he is he is right in one in one um, in one vein that none of the ethics bills that we have will prevent a a legislator from acting inappropriately. And, and that is exactly what happened with, with Speaker Deal and, and with Senator Lavota. Um, their actions were reprehensible. And um, no, he's right. None of the ethics bills that we have are going to address that. But to, to hide under that veil of saying, well, these bills, the, these don't address the, the atrocities that we've had in the past two years, so we shouldn't do them at all, is absurd. And and, and you know what? I, it may be just that you know, capitalizing on the whole, um, the whole notion that we need to clean up Jefferson City, and we're doing things. The House has done it, and the Senate has done it to clean up some of the, of the problems that that um, I wouldn't say led to um, what happened, but certainly are going to prevent, or hopefully prevent, any of those situations from from happening in the future. We've already done that as an internal policy, but. To say that we shouldn't still try to clean up uh, some of the ethical dilemmas of Jefferson City 
Um, I, I completely disagree in the strongest terms with, with the senator to say that, okay, well, we should throw our hands up in the air and not do any ethics reform because this isn't going to prevent the, the, the two lawmakers from last year from resigning. That, that is such a bogus statement, and um, I, I, really, um, I, I really question why someone would want to bog down all ethics reform that's going through the body under the veil that, oh, well, this isn't going to do anything. So do you think anything – I mean, you've got, what, about less than two months left. So, yeah, Do you well, think anything is going to come out? Yeah, what do you think the prognosis is not only for your bill but other ethics bills? I get, um, I get increasingly pessimistic with each day that goes on in the legislature that, uh, that we're in session where action is not taken. Um, again, I, I've been – I feel very confident in, in Senator Richard and Senator Kehoe whenever they, they said, yes, we're going to get something across the finish line. What that's going to look like, I really do not know at this point. But I can't even begin to negotiate the House position with the Senate position in the conference committee report until we get that back from the Senate. So um, the, the Senate still has to read in a conference or uh, allow us to go to conference on um, Representative Rowden's bill, which is the cooling off period. Um, and what they did to that bill um, needs some major, major work before it moves forward to, to a position that the House can take it. Um, and so we're it's um, we're at halftime right now, and uh, I would say the ball is on the 40-yard line. Um, we got 60 more yards to go. So let's talk about some of the things that are going to be um, after halftime with voter ID, because that's another bill that you sponsored. Right. You pushed through the House. Tell us a little bit about your bill and why do you think it's necessary? The House bill that we have this year, um, I think, addresses most of the, if not all, of the concerns that were in the 2006 court case that originally got voter ID thrown out, which was that um, voter ID— Well, we, we should say it's photo photo, photo, photo voter ID, yeah. correct. The photo ID um, somehow puts an undue burden on the voter— um, and, and you know what? I, I may have actually agreed with that um, under the 2006 bill because individuals had to purchase that, that ID themselves. What we've done with this year's version of uh, voter ID, photo voter ID, voter ID, is the 100% of the cost of obtaining the uh, photo ID and the source documentation that needed in order to obtain the photo ID is covered 100% by the state. If it is not appropriated the funds in an adequate amount, then the provisions of the bill do not go into effect. So the notion that we're ever going to disenfranchise anyone under this bill is complete nonsense and is just jumping to the worst conclusion um, without actually looking at what is in the bill. Now, at this point, I know, I mean, just for our listeners, no, without getting too much in the weeds, mm -hmm. it's a two it's a two prong process. You have to get something on the ballot to ask voters if they I would want contend, to do that, and then there's a separate impl implementation bill. Um, there, are, there is an HJR and there is a House bill. I would contend that the House bill is uh, – or the HJR is not entirely necessary because we have addressed the concerns in the 2006 court case that, that found it unconstitutional. But um, this year we are doing a, a two-prong approach in order to make sure that there is no – question to the legality and the constitutionality of photo voter ID. Now, as it stands now, do you think there's going to be something on the ballot this fall, or do you think the haggling is going to be such it'll be t two years before people get to vote on it? I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that we'll get it done this year. Um, we're at a point in the Missouri Senate that, you know, we, we've already, we're in mid-March, we saw a PQ. So at a certain point, you know, for bills that we have been fighting for 
um, as, as conservative legislators for the past 12 years that have died on the, on the Senate floor, um, what are, are, are we going to actually stick to our guns and do another PQ in order to get this legislation? Because we've already done it once. The Band-Aid's been ripped off. Um, are we going to continue to, to use it? Or, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not completely advocating for the use of the PQ in the Senate necessarily, but at a certain point, we've been trying to get this done for 12 years, and it dies every single year. I th- I'm hopeful that this is the year that if, if, um, if the minority party says, no, we're not going to do this under no certain terms, then uh, I, I think the PQ would be entirely appropriate for this bill. Now, just for our listeners, really quickly, pre- PQ is a man- man- maneuver called moving the previous question that ends debate. So it, that in the Senate, it's a way to shut off a filibuster. Uh, they use it in the House a lot, but in the Senate, it generally— it was used a lot about eight, nine years ago, and some thought that it poisoned the atmosphere, so there was less mm. of it until the last— couple years where maybe be used it's been sparingly used, it's been used it was used in 2014 during veto session right. it was used 2015 for right to work and it's now been used in march as you mentioned which I, this is going to be my question whenever they use the pq it usually is a signal that the session is pretty much over in the right. senate we saw a pretty unprecedented filibuster after the pq was used do you and think that 2015. it? I mean, right. I mean, I'm talking about right. this year. Yeah, and this this year, they, the Democrats sort of shut down action for the rest of so, the week. So, if if voter ID comes up, isn't it going to basically face? I mean, it's going to face a filibuster anyway. Sure. But are they going to be maybe skittish to bring it up after the the experience of SJR 39? You know that that, that that's a question that that's going to be have to be settled on the Senate floor. Um, and, and that is the chamber of negotiation. And I'm not privy to the conversation between Senator Keevney and, and Senator Richard or Senator Kehoe, where they're actually making the, the decisions on, you know, what they're going to allow to pass and what they're not. Um, but, but I will tell you that um, there's a lot of House members that are, are very upset at where we're at at this point. And that, that's probably it's probably have to do with just the nature of the building. This is how things are supposed to be slower in the Senate as they are in the House. But we've already sent over a good 100 bills that were on the floor of the Senate that could have been passed last year in the, in the week and a half after they used the PQ last time that died on the Senate floor. And there are a lot of House members. I don't have to t- be the first one to, uh, to tell you guys this. This happened you know, last week where we had debate on the House floor. Like, how many bills are we going to send over to the Missouri Senate that they are not going to answer our call? Well, let me ask you about that because I, c- I-, I can't read Speaker Richardson's mind. I- if I could, I think I'd be a lot uh, – I'd be very powerful, obviously. <laughs> but I can't imagine that he's particularly happy that the House has acted pretty early on a lot of these ethics bills. And then the Senate spent – a huge amount of time on this SJR 39, which I don't think was a priority in the House, and now has blown up the Senate and has pretty much compromised the ability for a lot of House legislation to get done. Now, again, I'm sure you can't read Speaker Richardson's mind or the the minds of leadership, but is the House going to be hesitant to act on that particular amendment until some House priorities are dealt with a little bit more seriously in the Senate? I think once we get into later April and, and especially early May, um, 
if we have not seen any action on some of the House's priorities, specifically some of the Speaker's priorities of ethics reform, um, that is one of the greatest powers of the House Speaker is to start killing legislation that comes over from the Senate. And we have historic um, right now um, agreements and, and, and working of compromise and, and cooperation between the House and the Senate. So I don't want to to, to sully any of that right now. But at a certain point, um, whenever you have 117, 116 House members in the majority party that are not getting their bills done because of the inaction of the Senate, that is going to boil over at a certain point, And it's not going to be good for, it's not going to be good for government. And let, let, let's be, let, let's look at what we still have to go yet. The Senate hasn't even read in the budget bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that is our one constitutional duty. And we're still you know, I have a month and a half. I mean, we still have to get these bills through committee, through the Senate floor, and sent to conference, and the clock is ticking on that. Now, one of the haggling things that's been going on with the budget is the whole thing with Mizzou funding. Mm-hmm. And some think that that's actually slowed down some of these other bills because of the battles over proposed cuts in Mizzou funding because of the protests last fall and all that. I'm just interested in your take on that, and how do you think it's going to be resolved? <sighs> As a um, as a Mizzou grad, um, I I and I gave this speech on the House floor, um, which I said, yeah, I get it. Legislators are angry. House members, Senate members, constituents, faculty, students. The protests that happened on the University of Missouri campus, yes, I get it. People are angry, but to cut performance funding for the University of Missouri when the students did everything right and and actually met the benchmarks that go into a performance funding measure, what you're doing whenever you're cutting that funding is you are punishing the 35,000 students who are a part of the University of Missouri system. That's not the proper way, in my opinion, to go. That's why I voted to restore the funding. Unfortunately, we were a few votes uh, short in in getting that resolved. But I, I do believe that whenever the Senate gets their hands on the budget, those cuts will be reinstated. Well, that was going to be my question because when I'm Sen- hopeful, yeah, when Senator Schaefer was private citizen Schaefer in 2008, I'm sure you knew this because you were running in the same circles he was. Helped out a lot on his campaign yeah. as well. Yeah. He was talking about how the previous Senator Chuck Graham was ineffective for Mizzou and was not a strong advocate for for their interests. He has been actually one of the most critical people of Mizzou's administration going forward. Um, I don't think that he has threatened to cut any of his funding. I think he's talked about maybe a committee as opposed to a funding cut. How much responsibility is it going to be for someone who said he was going to be a strong advocate for Mizzou to actually follow through with it now? Let let me be clear and piggyback on that. I was extremely critical. I I think that the Board of Curators acted horribly in, in, in the response um, both to the, to the protest on campus, but as well um, with the handling of, of Professor Click. How you allow this to boil over to the point that it, that, that it got and to last for that long, um, I, I still don't have all the answers on that. And I'm still not satisfied with the, with the response that they had to this professor. However, um, it, it is a responsibility of us uh, as legislators to fund and adequately fund the University of Missouri. It's our premier university, uh, state university for the state of Missouri. And to sit there and, and, and treat it and say, well, you know, we're, gonna, we're angry at, you know, the board of curators, so we're going to cut money is not an appropriate response. It's not going to make any legislator after the, the money is cut. It's not going to make them feel any better. So I, I don't understand what the purpose of, of, of cutting any further is going to do. Now, from what I understand from, um, from some advocates, 
uh, of the university is they're saying that there's a lot of federal money that's at risk if some of these cuts stay because some of it is linked, you know. And is there any discussion of that or not? There was a bit of a discussion of that on the House floor as it related to ag research as well. Um, but I hadn't seen that any of the cuts uh, for performance funding, because there was a $7 million cut um, to, to the administration that stayed, and, and also a cut to the performance funding as well. Um, the performance funding could jeopardize federal funds, um, but off the top of my head, I can't think of how much that's actually going to be. But even if it's, even if it's a $1 million cut to, in performance funding and, and it cuts you know, a cent of federal money coming in, this is our premier university. We should be protecting this as an institution, as, a, as an asset of the state of Missouri versus saying, oh, we're upset about the Mizzou football team protesting. We're upset about concerned students 1950. Um, and we're concerned about, you know, Professor Click, and, and we're just going to take their funding and go home. I, I just don't feel like that is the adequate response to what happened over the summer. We are out of time. We got through a lot in 40 minutes, but uh, we, we were especially glad that we were able to talk a lot about ethics and Mizzou and voter ID. And uh, we'll have to have you back on some other time. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And how can we follow you on Twitter? You can follow me on Twitter at Justin Alf, J U S T I N A L F. Well, I guess your last name was too long for the Twitter handle. Uh, I, I don't know if I went any <laughs> further. I think I just stopped at Alf. I think it's I think it's nice and concise, and we approve here at the podcast. Until next week, so long. Mm-hmm.